Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to be welcoming Scott Reams. Scott worked for Nike for nearly 30 years and was named the company's first ever historian. He played an integral part in organizing the artifacts that make up the shoe and apparel giant's history and even helped Nike's founder, Phil Knight, with his memoir, Shoe Dog. We discuss everything from Scott's career journey to some of his most memorable stories with executives and athletes while at Nike. For today's conversation, I am joined by a very special guest co-host, my father, Ross Waxman. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Why don't we start a little bit at the beginning of your journey? What was life like for you growing up? You know, I, I unfortunately didn't suffer the way that writers need to suffer. You know, I mean, I grew up in a, a suburb of St. Louis, very uh, much the the 2.5 children and a dog type of situation. Uh, it was great. It was great. I mean, I really had a great uh yeah, I mean, other than my father traveling quite a bit, because he, he was a, a traveling shoe salesman. But uh, other than that, was you know we were we were very happy, and, and I actually had we had three brothers, so we went beyond the two point five uh, allotted, but we did have the one dog. And then talk to us about school, because I know school was something for you that you went back and forth a little bit, and you can credit your wife for helping in that journey. But um, what was your educational journey like? It was a little twisted. I, uh, I, from St. Louis, we moved to Eugene, Oregon when I was in high school. And that was very traumatic, as you can imagine, for a 15, 16 year old to be pulled away from uh, the world he's pretty much only known into a very, very different world. I mean, I, Eugene is fantastic and I've learned to love it, but it was definitely hard for a 15 uh, year old to, to adjust. So when I graduated from high school, I was just like, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I'm getting out of Oregon. I'm going back to the Midwest. And I actually got into St. Uh, to uh, pardon me, Washington University in St. Louis. And then at the last minute, I changed my mind, and I just decided that would be retro. It would be going backwards instead of forwards. So I ended up staying at the University of Oregon. And you know, it's funny. I, I talk to high school kids now all the time about the the decisions you make, and some are obvious, and some are not. You know, life throws you curveballs, and, and things you choose turn out to change your life in a dramatic way. And I think staying at staying in Oregon clearly obviously changed the rest of the direction of my life. Uh, but even at the Oregon, I was very conflicted. So I started off in, in a math degree um, focus. I was going to be a math teacher. I was always really good at math. Uh, but I found out after a couple of years of doing the practicum and, and, and essentially being in the classroom trying to teach math was I'm good at math because I'm just good at math. I'm not good at teaching other people how to do math. It just happens in my head. So I found out that was the hard way that that's uh, it's not transferable necessarily. So I, I ended up stopping uh, after, uh, let me back up. I, I ended up taking a year on exchange at the University of Massachusetts. And I had a transformational year that year. I, I just, I was able to be in a completely different world, different people, different friends, different expectations, lack of expectations. No one knew who I was. So I could almost do a, a, a reset. And I did. Um, did a lot of fun things that year, some of which I can and cannot say on a podcast, but they were, it was a good time. 
So when I came back from that, I started, that's when I started questioning math and everything else. I was like, is this really what I want to do? Or is it just sort of the rut that I, the chart that I was on and decided it was the, the chart. So I decided to take a step back. I dropped out of university, was working at the YMCA in Eugene at the time at the front desk. And I was asked to do some writing because it's a nonprofit. You know, they, they squeeze everything they can out of every employee. And I, and I like to write. So I ended up starting writing, starting to write um, newsletters, et cetera. And that grew into helping with some public relations, helping with some communications, doing the, 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 the monthly or the quarterly uh, program guide. And that blossomed into being a halftime and then a full-time public relations person, ultimately public relations director. And I loved it. It was easy for me to do. I enjoyed it. I liked writing. The YMCA was so easy to, to PR for because I didn't have to, I didn't have to do message points. I just believed in what they do and I still do. So I was, and, and I also met my, my now wife. And after about four years of working at the Y, my wife finally said, you know, you're really good at public relations. You're so close to getting your degree. Why don't you just go back and finish it? Unfortunately, I listened to her and I did. And I'm getting my degree at the University of Oregon in journalism in 1989, a full 10 years after I'd graduated from high school. I always have to throw these details in when my wife tells the story because she makes it sound like it took me 10 years to get through college. And even though that's technically true, I wasn't in school for 10 full years. So I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm a little better than that. So anyway, that, that was my journey. So I ended up 1989 with a degree in journalism. Uh, I applied for a job at the university, I mean, pardon me, at Nike, because uh, I've always been Nike's part, a big part of Oregon. There's a big connection there. A lot of people I knew worked there. And I thought it sort of was my same vibe. And I got the letter back saying, thank you for your interest. And, you know, essentially go out and find real world experience and then come back to us. I'm sort of paraphrasing. Um, but so I did. And anyway, so the, all that, all that, the 80s essentially all built up to launching me on what ended up being my career. So those who know me, um, I'm, a, I'm in marketing and just got my MBA in marketing. And when people ask me, like, where do you see your career? I have one word. I'm like Nike. Because <laughs> when you think about it as someone who loves marketing and you've seen the brand grow, and we're definitely going to talk about Nike. But when I see the words, just do it as a slogan, like I feel something, their mm -hmm. marketing, their PR makes you believe in the impossible. Um, and I think that your educational journey is really relates to that because of the fact that a lot of people in our country can't afford school or have to go back and forth to school. And they feel like, is this really going to happen to me? Can I make a career? And you are a great example of someone who took, yes, as your wife likes to kind of point out 10 years, but you found yourself, you figured out what you wanted to do which I think is really important for listeners to understand, not just to go the path that when they were 18 years old and decided to choose to continue. I know what I thought I was going to be at 18. Like I wanted to be a doctor. I am not, but you know, I think people get down on themselves. So I really love that you're so open about it took a while, but you had great experience. And then Nike said, get some, you know, other experience you got it. And then talk to us about what was your first role at Nike? Cause you've had several and we'll kind of move through your um, career journey. Okay. Yeah. My, so as I mentioned, right after I graduated from 
college, my wife and I actually moved back to St. Louis of all places. And, and the weird part was she actually got a job offer there. So that was a little twist. Uh, so I went back, followed her and got a job at a company called Fleshman Hillard, which is a, now it's a rather large agency. I think it might be one of the world's largest agencies, but at the time it was an up and growing, up and coming agency. And I started working on the Valvoline account, which super exciting, gets you a lot of Valvoline instant oil change openings in you know, Cincinnati and things like that. Meanwhile, my colleagues that are working on the Anheuser-Busch uh, account are going to Moscow with the Rolling Stones. So I'm like, hey guys, have fun. I'll be in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, so it wasn't the greatest in terms of opportunities for me, but it was what I was doing there. And again, this is the, to your point earlier about your, the, the journey that has many sometimes twists and turns that you don't expect. Part of what I was doing was I was actually assigned to the top fuel drag racing uh, driver, Joe Amato, as part of Team Valvoline. And I love sports, but to me, motorsports is like, nah, not really my, my thing. But for a year, I did motorsports PR. And when the year was done, I was like, okay, well, that's interesting. But I really didn't think anything more of it. And I started moving away from the agency, started thinking like I wanted to move back into doing something for a company as opposed to an agency. So I actually started looking for a job while my wife was getting her master's in business from Washington University, ironically, a school I almost went to. And uh, I ended up getting a job offer in Portland, right? So she's a native Oregonian and I'm a native Missourian and she gets a job offer in my hometown. And I get a job offer back in Oregon. So it's weird, weird karma. Uh, so I got a job with a small event company in Portland that did motorsports for uh, racing uh, a couple of, uh, now they're called in, uh, Open Wheel. I think they're called IndyCar back then. I can't remember. It's been a long time. But I did some PR. For, I did PR for those races. And as I was living in Portland, I started to get to know people who worked at Nike. Nike wasn't a sponsor of the races, but it's, again, it's a small town, and a, a big city, small town type of thing. So um, a friend I had made said, you know, Nike is looking for a marketing and events person for this new um, Nike town concept they've just opened in Portland and they just, they just opened one in Chicago. This was in uh, the summer of 1992. And he said, you should apply. He said, they were having, they're having a hard time finding people that have marketing events and public relations experience. And I happen to have all three, thanks to the stops I'd made. So I applied and I found out later, I, I got the job, obviously, because I'm here now, but I got or I was working there. So I, I got the uh, call about two or three years later, I got a call from somebody saying, by the way, did you ever hear that you were like the only person out of 250 or 270 people who applied who had the spectrum of what you were they were looking for the job? And I said, no. So that, again, that reinforced to me that, again, the, sometimes the shortest distance between two points is not necessarily a straight line. Um, so I started, that's how I started Nike. I was, I was the marketing events PR slash everything coordinator for the Nike Town stores. And especially in the early 90s, that was when the stores were really hitting their stride. And there were they, Nike was investing a lot both in time and, and, and resources, but also athletes. So they were always asking me to get athletes in the stores, do athlete appearances. Uh, so there, there was times when I was literally doing like one a week. You know, and this, Nike's here based here in Portland, for those who don't know. And so a lot of athletes will come to, to town to have meetings and at that time, they were like, hey, as long as you're here, why don't you do an appearance at Nike Town? So I would get calls from people saying, would you like to have Nolan Ryan come down to the building? Like, yes, yes, I, I really would like to have Nolan Ryan come to the building. You know, I had John McEnroe. You know, we had uh, Joan Benoit. I mean, just one after another. And I, was, and I didn't really even have to do anything. I mean, people just call me and say, can we get them in the store? 
so that was pretty pretty amazing. Um, and then, as I said, I also did it in Chicago, so I was flying back and forth, getting to know the the, the flight crew on United quite well. Uh, and I did that for almost three years. Opened up at Nike Town Atlanta, Nike Town Orange County. Uh, it was quite a it was quite a, an eventful couple three years of uh, entry into the company. So you're talking to two Chicagoans on this podcast, and I was young in the nineties, but I was fortunate enough that we had season tickets to the bulls. I remember going to the first Nike town. Um, and let's talk a little bit about Michael Jordan. Cause <laughs> you know, he, you have the Jordan brand now, but Nike, if you read shoe dog, you really learn the history of what it took to get athletes in the shoe. Mm-hmm. And then Jordan comes along. Obviously, Nike helped make Michael, and Michael helped make Nike. Mm-hmm. I have a son who is a Jordan head. Probably has 30 pair of original Jordans. Wow. Um, I grew up with Converse All-Stars. That was the shoe that every kid in eighth grade and high school had to have. Um, but my children grew up in the Nike era. What was it like? And I, I know you weren't at the meeting, but what was it like when it was announced that Jordan had agreed to sign with Nike? Yeah, that was that was about eight years before I joined the company, but it's oh. obviously a critical point in our company history. So I've spoken to just about every person that was either in the room, near the room, or within five miles of the room uh, when the meeting happened. And uh, it was it was it's a great story. I mean, yeah, he, as you mentioned, he. He himself wore Converse at North Carolina. He was being heavily courted by Adidas. Uh, a lot of folks thought, in fact, he even said that he wasn't even going to go to his trip to, to Portland because, you know, why bother? I'm going to sign with Adidas. So, you know, there was obviously a lot of uh, people working within the company at Nike to uh, entice him. And it turned out that the people who had the most influence on him, rightly enough, were his mom and dad basically told him, you said you were going to go to Nike and visit and, and listen to their proposal. You're going to go to Portland and listen to their proposal. And so we did. And fortunately for us, or I guess I should say them now since I'm retired, but fortunately for Nike, um, the presentation they put on was pretty much a, a, over the top in terms of showing him that it would be more than just a shoe. It would be, it would be a larger connection, a larger um, relationship and, you know, again, I wasn't in the room and the stories vary a little bit by who uh, wants to promote what by, you know, their connection to that story. But essentially when the, when the dust settled, he had agreed or decided to, to sign with Nike. And that obviously forever changed his path, our path, and really the path of footwear marketing and uh, athlete endorsement. It's interesting. I think your career in Nike, like growing shows parallels because you go from helping with the Nike stores to then going and becoming the um, global head of communications because Nike just kept growing. It needs someone to kind of run all of that. What was it like? So you think about the nineties and you start having these big sports stars and you mm-hmm. always had big sports stars, but in a different way. Now they're getting marketed. They're doing the Gatorade commercials and Wheaties and you want them in your shoes and talk about what that was like. How did you manage that from your career point and just as it was growing? 
Yeah, the, well, they, there were a lot of things going on in the 80s that contributed to not only Michael's uh, meteoric and, and sustained success, but also, yes, other athletes. I mean, your two point is correct. We'd sign, we signed John McEnroe, other athletes in the 70s. But then the advent of ESPN, MTV, the rise of, uh, I mean, sports center. Again, I'm, I'm, I grew up in the Midwest and moved to Oregon. I could never see highlights. I never saw highlights of the Cardinals games or, you know, they just wouldn't be on. I'd see plenty of Mariners highlights, you know, but, um, you know, but then ESPN comes along and sports center and everybody around the country and around the world can watch Michael and his magic and, and magic. But I mean, they can see all these athletes that were uh, either in on newspaper or newsprint, or they just didn't hear much about. So that was all going on. And then, yes, it was definitely the, the acumen of our the marketing folks within Nike to understand uh, and widening Kennedy, our longtime agency, um, to, to put um, uh, Mars, or not Mar- well, Mars Blackman, Spike Lee with Michael Jordan, right? So there was that, that understanding of, of pairing and, 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 and drawing out the personalities of the athletes. And, you know, you look at that, you look at Bo Jackson and the Bo Nose ads, you look at uh, Little Penny. You know, and just it's just a history of, of marketing and knowing how to bring an athlete's uh, off court and inner persona out. And and then, of course, it doesn't hurt when the athletes go out and completely kick ass. You know, as you as you well know, since you had a front row seat in Chicago in the 90s, um, that was an incredible, incredible run. And all those things come together. That's why I think it's not when people say, well, you know, Nike kind of lucked into them. Like, well, we did, but. You know, there's opportunity and luck together, and then you maximize it. Because if it were so easy, you know, why aren't why isn't this happening all the time? Take a big athlete, do a big ad campaign, and voila, you got an instant success. That that just doesn't happen very often. So my particular part in that was to your to your question was, yes, I did. So I moved from retail and moved into sports marketing first, and that was again because of all the athletes that I had had worked with and tried to get into the stores, and I just felt like it was. There was a missed opportunity there because everything was siloed, right? If I needed an athlete in Chicago, I had to go to the basketball sports marketing team and try to get you know, an athlete. If I, they couldn't come and I had to start all over again with the baseball, all over with the football. I thought, this is ridiculous. I just need an athlete in a store in Chicago. Why can't I just go to one, one place? So that's what I proposed. And that's what ended up being created. Uh, ultimately, it's called Athlete Relations. It changed name a few times, but. The idea was that there would be a, a small team that I managed and you would come to just that point point. say we're having a, there's a, a final four going on in uh, New Orleans and we need an athlete there. And we go, okay, well, what are your parameters? And so then we would work out all the details, find the athlete, work out the arrangements and get the athlete to that particular location. Uh, and it was, it worked great for, for several years, uh, but I started to get a little antsy. I wanted to get it really wanted to get into public relations back into my, my goal. And in 1997, there was a change in the leadership of, of the USPR team. And the person who stepped in was actually a person I knew really well, and he knew my qualifications. So um, long story short, I ended up moving into the community, into the public relations department, uh, did that. And I love doing that. I mean, that was, I mean, it was a great time and a terrible time in some ways. It's the late nineties, you know, the brand and the marketing was amazing with some of the best ads we've ever done. Some of the great product. We also had the rise of the uh, labor issue uh, over in, in, you know, in Asia which took up a lot of our time and energy as well. So it was a, it was a, it was very heady in terms of just, there was all sorts of things going on, but it was almost like maddening in some ways because you just never got a day off, right? It was always something going on. 
Um, but I enjoyed that and I enjoyed bringing my own level of expertise of how to definitely communicate with reporters, how to, um, how to get a story maybe even either killed or redirected because you provide enough um, information that can illuminate a, 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 role, a, a story better. And so I, I can't tell you how many times I, you know, I was successful, but no one would ever know because a story that was, was building, I end up either diffusing or able to get uh, rerouted or, or killed altogether because the, the reporter was dealing with information that was incorrect or was inflated by someone else. And I was able to deflate it. Anyway, that's kind of boring stuff, but it was important, important enough that when they did create a, a global brand communications team, I was asked to, to step into that role with a couple other people. And then we did that for several years. And the goal there was to have one overarching communications plan that could then be shared with and adapted as needed throughout the Nike world. So obviously the Europe and the European media and the European messaging should be connected with and supporting of the Nike overall message, but it might have to be more tailored to their markets, same with Asia, South America, et cetera. So that's what my, my team and I did. And that was a, that was a fun, that was a fun and, and new charted uncharted territory for us. So we, we had a lot of, um, challenges but also a lot of fun because there was no precedent when you were uh doing the international thing were you at nike signing you know we don't know because because we're here but were you signing athletes uh top athletes in sports in other parts of the world and in effect they were the michael jordan of their country yes i personally wasn't but yes nike was uh, the sports marketing team had athletes uh, Kathy Freeman in Australia, you know, who won the, the 400 meters in, in 2000. Um, Sergei Bubka was a huge Nike athlete. Over, he was uh, Ukrainian or Russian, I can't remember. Um, so yeah, most all the all the countries around the world had their own budget to sign athletes that were locally relevant. I mean, obviously, on Michael Jordan, there's a handful of athletes that transcend. But, uh, you know, you, you want to have a, a Chinese athletes that are more relevant to the, the Chinese market. So that, that was, that was probably, when I was in the sports marketing department, that was still in its younger days. We had some international athletes, but not nearly as many as we do uh, today. So Scott, in the 1993 world championship, Quincy Watts was running and his shoe fell apart. And this is in the nineties. Nike's logo is finally on some athletes running, which with Phil, being a runner and the whole history of Nike, that was really symbolic, but the shoe fell apart. Can you talk about how, what his reaction was and the company's answer to that, that occurred three years later? Absolutely. And this is actually one of the lessons I told ad nauseum to Nike employees, because to me, it's easy to focus on the Michael Johnson gold shoes, 1996. Again, if your listeners are Younger than, well, I'm sure they're all younger than me, <laughs> but um, uh, just a brief history. Michael Johnson was the preeminent runner, uh, was expected to do well at the Olympics in 1996. He was going to run the 200 and 400 meter, uh, which was pretty rare to be done in the same Olympics. And he was expected to probably win both, but certainly win one. He ended up blowing, uh, saying a world record of one, and he, and he blew away, you know, he basically won both of them. Big news. And he did it all in a pair of gold-layered Nike shoes. 
And everybody was all, you know, excited about that. He was on all the media coverage and time sports I and mean, sports illustrate. Everybody was, was, couldn't get enough of it because it was, it was kind of ballsy, right? I mean, you, you go out there in gold shoes and you don't win gold, you don't look so good, you know? So it was, it was, a, it was kind of a calculated risk. But what the story, as you mentioned about Quincy Watts, that to me has got so much greater impact and so much more important for young uh, Nike employees to understand. So yes, I'll, I'll go back three years now. So Quincy Watts is in the world championships uh, in, in Stuttgart, which is basically the Olympics for non-Olympic years, right? It's the, it's the biggest race of the year for, for track and field. And he's coming around the final turn and it's the term in, in, in football or footwear parlance is delam or delamination. His, his shoe delams, and essentially it means it's like, you know, the top and the bottom are flapping like this. And it ultimately, instead of finishing first, he actually finished, I think, fourth, you know, completely out of the medals. And it was terrible, right? I mean, it was a, it was a terrible situation. The, the footwear that we provided failed. Um, you know, they did some forensics later and they, they figured that the, the shoe had been kept in the trunk of a car. It was really hot. The, the glue softened. And so essentially under that, the stress of a, of a runner, a 400 meter runner, the, they, de, they delaminated. And Phil Knight rightly called that one of the greatest um, blunders and or mistakes that our company had ever made because we let an athlete down at the pinnacle moment of his or her career by not having our, our, ourselves buttoned up. So that sounds really, it's really a down and really negative, but there was no one fired from that. There was no, I mean, I'm sure he, I'm sure there was some paint that was peeled off some walls from some conversations that were had, but the, the, what I love about this story is what the decision there was, again, not punitive, but solving it. What happened? How did this happen? How do we keep this from never happening again? And so out of that, down came the up of creating a team that was specifically the, uh, targeted with nothing but the highest level product for the highest level athlete. Every detail, everything that you know, scoped out and, and thought and planned. And it was that team who three years later had worked on the shoes that Quincy, I mean, pardon me, that uh, Michael ran in in 96 and other athletes and the gold shoe. I mean, all those things, that was the byproduct of the result of Nike taking a step back and saying, we really let this athlete down. We cannot let this happen again. And that to me is a much more powerful story than just, oh, let's pat ourselves in the back. He's a great runner. We made a gold shoe for him. Look, he won. Aren't we, aren't we amazing? That to me is like, eh, you know, who cares? So well, I think that goes with the campaign ad that was used briefly that I actually think I love more than just do it, which is there is no finish line. Mm-hmm. And that is so ingrained in, I feel like the Nike culture and athletes, like you want to break a two hour marathon. Okay. You do it. Then we're going to trim more time. Like you can just keep getting better. And I feel like that is the message that Nike sends to not only athletes, but those who wear their clothing or their shoes. Like life is a journey. Just because you cross or you accomplish one goal, there's going to be another. Why do you think that Nike hasn't used that slogan as heavily? I know the 50 year anniversary is coming up and I kind of hope that they slip that in somewhere. But why do you think they've really gone with the just do it? It's interesting. So there is a finish line has a, a fascinating story. Again, I'll just do a quick uh, recap. So in 1977, uh, we were very young in terms of our advertising. We hadn't done any t- uh, television advertising yet, just print 
And it was mostly in just a couple of like Runner's World and, and a couple other track and field magazines, maybe Sports Illustrated. And I can't remember if we'd started by then. Uh, and it was basically one ad a month. And usually it was touting whatever the newest footwear model we were releasing was. Uh, and it was a little techie, a little more informal, you know. And but then there's one month that came up in 77 where we had no new shoe in, in the pipeline. And so the ad manager told the copywriter, his name is John Brown. He just, she just said, well, write something that, I don't know, makes an athlete or makes a runner feel good about themselves. So John's not a runner. He's a great guy. I've met him a couple of times um, on, the, on the phone. I haven't actually met him in person. He's, 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 by, he's a self-admitted non-runner. But he somehow connected with the, the mental, whatever it is that makes an athlete an athlete and just jotted down, there is no finish line, put it on a print ad with a runner uh, taken way in the distance. You can't see any of the product. There's no product in the shot whatsoever. You can see a runner way down a road and you can see it's a very long road and there's some copy at the bottom, but essentially the line is there is no finish line. And it really struck accord with runners and consumers to the point where the stores that we were uh, selling through got all these people asking, do you have this? Is, is this a poster? Is this, I want to get a copy of this. And so we created a poster and gave a few to the retailers. Then we found out they were selling them. People were so excited about they were selling these posters that we'd given them. And that actually germinated the idea of, well, why don't we just make posters, which we had no poster business up to that point. So we did. We started making posters and that led to about 20 years of some amazing uh, what we call personality posters. Um, and I know I'm kind of far afield. Welcome to my my friends. They're like, oh, really? When is this story going to end? Um, I'm, I'm loving the, it. Keep going. Okay. We're loving it. Do not worry. Okay. Uh, so we brought up new versions of there is no finish line, other print ads. And, and yes, I, I do think it is. I would love to see there is no finish line, have a higher level of, of uh, certainly within Nike and, and outside Nike, because it's, I, I agree with you, your point earlier. It is way more of the center of the Nike ethos than even just do it. You hear it all the time or you, or you hear the, the message that, I mean, there's so many people at the company who, do some amazing things and they're celebrating it for about a minute and a half. And then they're like, you know, but we could, and they're already thinking about what they can do better next time. And just like, just do it. There is no finish line has a, a connectivity to everyone's life. You know, what doesn't matter what, if it's an athletic purpose or a self-improvement purpose or a get out of a bad relation purpose. I mean, it, it, it's very empowering to think that you can do this even better next time. And it's, I think that's what kept Nike so on its toes for so long was as soon as you start getting self-congratulatory and start getting self, you know, like again, the patting on the back, you start opening the door for the competitors to just say, Oh, they're getting a little sure of themselves, a little fat and lazy. You know, we're going to work a little harder and, and gain on them. And, and true to form every time we, I believe Nike got a little complacent, it opened the door for another brand to, to step in. And, and fortunately, every time that's happened, we've responded and, you know, it's, we're still on top of the, of the pile, but there is no finish line to me. And I, and I, to your point, I do hope uh, it will remain or is a part of the 50th anniversary celebration in the coming months. Uh, certainly on what I left behind when I, before I retired, <laughs> it was a key part of it. So I'm going to be very curious to see how it manifests itself. So when I'm sure 
people at Nike were freaking out when Michael Jordan said, I'm going to go play baseball. <laughs> yes. And then obviously he came back. And when he retired, I'm sure um, Nike was struggling to find the next Michael. How lucky did they get with Tiger Woods? <laughs> well, that's the famous quote that Phil Knight made was everybody was talking about the next Michael, but he wasn't on a basketball court. He was on a golf course. You know, and I, I, that's a good question, Ross. And I think it's easy in hindsight to go back and say, well, that what an amazing selection that was. But, you know, you look at, you look at Michael, right? I mean, he hadn't played a minute of professional basketball when we signed him. Tiger Woods had just turned pro in September of, of October, or August or September of 96 when we signed him. He hadn't won a tournament on the pro circuit. Everybody expected he would. Everybody expected Michael would do well, but it's, it's definitely easy to look back and say, oh, wow, you know, wow, it was amazing. But um, I, Phil Knight has an uncanny ability to identify future stars. And it's not 100%, nobody is. But he, for example, we had signed Andre Agassi in the, in the 90s, and he was amazing. And we thought, well, we've got our tennis guy. And Phil said, eh, there's another young guy I think we need to look into named Pete Sampras. And, you know, our tennis folks knew about Pete. But they thought, well, we already have Andre. And Phil was insistent, no, we need, we need Pete as well. And those, some of those ads, again, for the, for the younger folks, look up Agassi Sampras Nike. And those ads and, the, and, the, and the, the, the duels that they had on the court were almost literally took tennis into a different stratosphere that has, it's really not seen since. So I know your question is about Jordan and Tiger, but that's, that's basically Phil, you know, Phil knowing um, even though our golf product in the nineties, the golf guys hate it when I say this, but our golf guy, our product in the nineties was not exactly cutting edge. So to sign a young uh, potential phenom to a really lucrative contract on his part, without the greatest product at that time, we didn't have clubs or, or irons and uh, I know we don't now, but we were, were developing them and have him be your, your standard bearer was really an odd and, and, and at the time I thought choice, but it was obviously something that Phil just knew. And then again, crediting our marketing folks, they knew how to put Tiger in positions and place him in ways that, that added to the, I mean, he would Tiger did everything he needed to do on the course, but, but we did our, our, our best to support and message him in a way that made him really relatable. Was he your first golfer? Oh, no, no. We'd had Peter Jacobson, Curtis Strange, a um, bunch of others. I mean, and the lovely men and great people. And, and Curtis, and, or Peter especially, has been very gracious about uh, his early days with Nike. But um, they just it just wasn't. It just didn't have that flashpoint, you know, just, I guess it wasn't, we didn't have the product in the eighties. We weren't really supporting of a golf. I mean, that was one of the benefits of Nike in the nineties was we were cooking on all cylinders by the mid nineties. We went, we went from the 3 billion revenue per year in 1990 to almost 9 billion in, in 1997. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. Right. So by the time we'd signed Tiger in 96, we weren't, just a running company anymore. We weren't even just a running a basketball company anymore. We were now a global company. So you have the freedom to take more risks because if one particular athlete bottoms out or fails, it's not like, oh my God, we just we just put our you know we put all of our chips onto him, which we might have like we had done maybe with Peter or with another golfer in the in the in the 90s. So during the 80s. So it was 
definitely a calculated risk to sign Tiger, but uh, it obviously paid off. You know, it seems to me in, in just my observation of Nike, the only failure they really had is the golf equipment business. Yeah, it was, it was a, that was a mindset change. It was clear we were never going to be in the top. I, I think at the time, the litmus test was, could we be the leader or the one or two, basically first or second in the industry? And it is such an incredibly competitive and expensive market to uh, to get into. I mean, we were doing pretty well with apparel, and we still are. And the footwear was growing a little bit, but, you know, foot joy has been around forever. And the equipment is very, very, the margins are low. It's an extremely tough business. And I think at some point there was just a decision by the, the senior leadership that, this is going to be a, a long, long-term investment for probably a, a only a minimal financial gain. And so I, I'm disappointed because I still play with my Nike slingshots and I love them. But um, you know, sometimes the business just moves in a direction that is not best for us. I mean, another great example that probably neither one of you even remember was we had a NASCAR shoe that we created. It was actually a motorsport shoe. And I, the reason I know so much about it, because I, because of my background, I was asked to help with communications on it. Uh, we worked with Dale Jarrett. We worked with Al Unser Jr. I mean, some of the greatest drivers of the late nineties. And we created a shoe that the pit crew could run in because they were already, run, they were already doing the pit crew changes on that hot, hot asphalt, you know, in, in you know, 13 seconds, whatever in which we're ripping out because this is not why they were designed, right? This is not the stress that they're designed for. So a couple of our designers who are into motorsports met with the NASCAR teams, talked to them about what their shoes needs were, talked about how they, where they wear and how they would like to have and created pit crew shoes and shoes for Dale, Jarrett and others that were amazing. And the company was, I thought, poised to really take that market on. And then there was a change at the top, not not top top, but a change in uh, mid mid top of that. And the person who took over to NASCAR was not where we want to take the brand, and that whole thing went away. You know, so there's some again, no one's perfect, and I still think that was a mistake. But um, sometimes the brand just has to has to regroup or decide that that's too far afield. Even golf itself and getting the whole green grass uh, that's a very different marketing or a very different distribution. Right. It's not it's not so much sporting goods stores. It's individual country clubs. And, you know, so it's a very uh, different model. And there are a lot of people saying, well, we're not that's not the, what the swoosh represents. It's a different brand. And we just we learned over time that the elasticity of the swoosh trademark is way greater than people realize. You helped Phil Knight uh, with the research of Shoe Dog. Mm-hmm. And what I find so fascinating to those who have not read it, I highly recommend it. In Shoe Dog, Phil talks about the River Jordan, the mystical Kobe in Japan, and the right that he and his team had to sell Tiger shoes. And I thought that was so, I don't want to say magical, but almost like manifestation that some of your biggest athletes are Jordan and Tiger and, you know, Kobe. It seems like a lot of Nike has manifested itself. And as a historian who documented everything, do you see that pattern play out in the Nike history to some extent? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't, I, I, you know, it's hard for me because I was so much in, in the middle of it. 
to, to step back. I'm getting more of a perspective of every month that I'm away from the company because I was there for, I was there for over 29 years. So I'm not even sure how I, I'm not sure how I would answer that. That's a, I don't, I'm not really, I mean, I'm really stumped. <laughs> I, it just, I thought it was so interesting because, you know, he ends the book kind of talking about these names and how it's constantly shown up. And even now it seems like with Nike, when you decide or you lean into something, the company goes for it. Look at your career, you know, you pitched the idea of this DNA group as a historian to document everything. And it's like, you, you manifest it and then you accomplish it to some extent. So I just always thought that was interesting when I read that book, that those names now are on the buildings in a company that, you know, while he was finding himself or traveling, that they ended up being huge players later in life with him. But anyway, so just to move on as Talk to us about how the historian role came about. Why did you feel the need to present it? And why did you think it was time for Nike to get one? In the early 2000s, I mentioned earlier, I was uh, in the global brand uh, PR communications team. And one of the assignments or one of the roles I played was to be uh, facilitate the interviews that our senior executives did, including Phil. And I specifically was assigned to Phil uh, in terms of managing his calendar, managing his his, his uh, interviews. And as I sat in on them and facilitated them, I, I noticed a little drifting here, a little drifting there. The, the details, the the facts were, you know, I would say you paid $50 for the swoosh. And then next time you'd say you paid $35 for the swoosh. And I, you know, little, just little things, but little, and I just realized that I don't, we don't really have a definitive source there had been an unauthorized book about nike written years ago earlier and it's it's not bad uh there's some bias i think uh, in there but there really was no definitive source and, and so i started my wheels started turning i thought you know we really are an oral history company that's now getting into its at that time now that was 92 or two that were about 30 years old you know and we bill barman had just recently passed away our co-founder so we're losing voices, right? We're losing people that could have had their stories captured. So all these wheels are turning. And I went to a long time Nike employee's name's Nelson Ferris. He's actually still there. He's, he just passed his 49th anniversary with the company. So he actually started within six months or eight months after the company started itself. And I just said to Nelson, I said, I really feel we're missing a bet here by not sitting down with folks like yourself and Phil and, and others and, and recording and even better, intertwining and getting more voices to the choir, right? Just if you've got four people that were, or three people that were in the room and the, cho- the swoosh, swoosh was chosen, let's talk to them together about what their recollections are and we'll get a better story. And Nelson liked the idea. And I was going to run it up through the food chain, you know, it's a typical Nike, just following orders, of, you know, going up to the levels. And he goes, we should show this to Phil. I said, well, I'm not really ready to show this to Phil yet. He goes, oh yeah, we'll do it as soon as I can get on his calendar. So he calls me back and goes, we're, on, we're having lunch with him tomorrow. Like, oh, okay. So I worked with a, a friend who worked at the Nike with, com- with the company as well. He helped me crystallize a lot of the ideas, put together a quick proposal, and we met with Phil. And my my point was essentially, we do a great job of capturing. We have an archive that captures the footwear and the apparel and all the collateral materials. It's it's amazing stuff, but no one's capturing the stories behind it. No one's 
no one's sewing them together and weaving them together and, and also verifying them. That's a, turned out to be a, a rather critical part of it. Uh, and Phil listened and he nodded and he basically, he, he said, well, that sounds interesting, but it's more than just something you could do. You need like, you need like a staff of six people on a budget of $3 million. And I was, the, I was like this pregnant pause and he goes, and you're not going to get it. And I said, okay. But he goes, well, let, I like the idea. Let me think about it. And then several months later, I got a call from the man who's overseeing the archives and saying that uh, he'd gotten word that there was going to be a headcount approved. And would I be interested in being the Nike's, what turned out those different names, but ultimately we'd settle on historian. And I said, yes. And so that was 2004 into 2005. And I've been, I did that for the last uh, 13 or no, last 17 years of my career until I retired. And it was critical because almost it's serendipitous in, a, serendipitous in a weird way. But at the time I was, I was pitching this idea. There were several brushes with uh, mortality that were sort of reinforcing and underlining my message. They're like Jeff Johnson, our first employee suffered a stroke. He recovered, but at the time he suffered a stroke. Another longtime employee was diagnosed with a, a very bad cancer who again, lived for a number of years, but he ended up passing. Another employee, a long-time employee, had an brain aneurysm. I mean, so it's literally, literally like reminding people on a daily basis that we're all day-to-day, right? So, and again, as I said, Bill Barman had passed away and a couple other early Nike employees. So I think the the timing, of, as, as wrong as it sounds, say the timing was right. It, it sort of was that people were, or this was reinforcing my point that we can't assume that we can always just go down the hallway and talk to Nelson or talk to Phil about something. And so I think all that built together to create the momentum that, that my 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 proposal was just in a fortunate window, if you will, and that then yeah then that was the next seventeen years. I ended up having when I retired, I had a staff of seven people, you know. So he was pretty much spot on. I didn't have the I didn't have a three million dollar budget, but you know, I I, I like the stuff. The people were great. What is your favorite story about either prod uh, product or? an athlete that you like to tell that people wouldn't know? Well, I have, I've, again, fortunate to be in sports marketing and PR, you meet a, at archives, you meet a lot of people, a lot of athletes. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge baseball fan, again, growing up in St. Louis. And my favorite story is just because it was literally so unexpected. I, I was sitting in my, I was in a first floor cube in the John McEnroe building, which is one of the first buildings that was open on campus. On the first, and I said, well, the first floor just past the reception desk. And I was kind of lost in whatever I was working on. And I heard somebody come up behind me and say, excuse me, excuse me. And I said, yes. And I kind of go over my shoulder and say, yes. Because people ask me all the time, you know, where's the bathroom? Where, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I really didn't turn around. And he says, I'm supposed to meet somebody, but they don't seem to be here on the front desk. I wasn't sure uh, where they were. And they said, you might know. So I turn, I kind of wheel around and I'm standing, I mean, I'm sitting in my cube staring up at Tony Gwynn, who is one of my all-time favorite athletes, baseball player for the Padres. And he was supposed to meet a, a Nike person at the airport. He thought at Nike, they thought the airport, so the Nike person got on the airport to pick him up. He got a ride. So I got a kind of somewhat a frantic call from the, from the baseball sports marketing person saying, I'm, I'm running late. I'm coming back from the airport. Can you please just, you know, sit there and hang out with Tony? I'm like, geez. What will I do hanging out with Tony Gwynn? So for the next 30 minutes, you know, he saw the Cardinal stuff on my walls. And so he said, oh, you're from St. Louis. And 
you know, he said, when I go to St. Louis, I always go to this restaurant and so-and-so and Ozzie Smith and Bob. And we I was just lost in a 30 minute conversation with like one of my idols about baseball and, and St. Louis. And it was, it was the coolest thing ever. And it's as if that weren't enough. Right. So the, the person from sports marketing gets there, they nice to meet you. Tony takes off. And I'm just like, I can't wait to tell everybody I know. Um, and so this is obviously the off season because he was in town months later at spring training, somebody from my staff had been down at spring training. Uh, this again, was when I was in sports marketing and she came up to me and said, I've got a little gift for you. And I said, what do you mean? And she goes, Tony sent me something or sent, gave me something to give to you. And he had autographed a bat uh, and just said to Scott, you know, thanks for being a fan. of so like Tony Gwynn and a baseball and gave it to Christina to give to me. And I'm like, I didn't even know that he would even remember who I was, you know, and much less that he, that he, that he remembered that I was such a fan. And he did, that. he didn't absolutely, he did not need to do that. And I still, it's one of my most cherished uh, pieces of uh, memorabilia, but that was to me, one of those great things about working at Nike, right? I mean, just, you literally never know when you went around the corner. Oh, that's Peekaboo Street. Or isn't that, that looks like Roger Federer, you know, and it was, and it was just the, it was the coolest part of the, the job, but to actually have him come into my cube and sit down in my chair and just jaw about baseball for an hour or over a half hour was just, well, I still like get goosebumps over. Mallory, one of the greatest hitters of all time. So on the Nike campus, it has grown and yes. you dedicate buildings, certain athletes have certain buildings and there's always like a big, um, I won't say party, but when you open the building for the first time, you'll invite the athletes and, you know, employees, friends, family, all that. What was the best building dedication that you were at or heard about? Oh, yeah. Nike doesn't shy away from a good reason to have a party or even a bad reason to have a party. So the athletes, the dedications of the athletes buildings are off the hook and by far the greatest one, in my opinion, was when, was Tiger Woods. So, the, and the framing, the timing, I mean, everything about it was just unbelievable, right? So his, his building is the, it's called the Tiger Woods Conference Center, I think the title. And it's basically our, uh, a large facility that we can have sales meetings and things on the campus instead of having to go off. Portland, unfortunately, doesn't have large hotel spaces that can do large conventions. So a lot of times our people have to go to Phoenix or Houston or other places. And it's very expensive, not just the people, but all the shoes, all the equipment. So they decided, well, why don't we just build one here on campus? You know, so they did and they named it after Tiger. So that's the little background there. And his building was finished in 2001. And those who follow golf know that that was a great year for Tiger. Not so, not even such a great year. Tiger, a great year for any golfer in the history of the planet. It was May of 2001, and he, when he came to the campus, was the current holder of what's now called the Tiger Slam. He had won, was the defending champion of all four golf majors. So he is literally the hottest athlete on the planet. And he's coming to Portland. And so there's a buzz, a buzz, 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 right? People can't wait to see him. And we had, the way the campus is set up, they're outside of his building, on the other side of, of there's a soccer, two large soccer fields. They're the actual two international sized soccer fields side by side. It's a humongous area. And on the other end, there's a sports and fitness center that had not been opened yet. And next to that sports and fitness center, there is a, is a small golf putting area 
and, and we measured it. It's 317 yards from that back to the Tiger Woods building. And, and there's a replica of the 18th tee box at Pebble Beach, which is one of his favorite tee boxes. So he, that, that's where the event happened. So Tiger and Phil are mic'd up. It's a beautiful sunny day. There's, I swear, at least 4,000 employees and family and God knows who else there. And they're on bleachers and the bleachers go all the way down the soccer field. And there's people everywhere, the media everywhere. I mean, I, I was doing the, the, the PR at the time. So I was overseeing the media. We had ESPN there. I mean, again, because Tiger is the hottest thing at the time. Media from San Francisco, Los Angeles, Portland, or Seattle, everywhere. And so it's amazing. And Tiger is just putting on a show. He was so comfortable with whatever. I mean, Phil loves to throw barbs and tease him. You know, like, oh, if you break a window on that building, on the, the fitness center, that's going to be $5,000 out of your contract. Uh, you know, so he's teasing him. And Tiger here just going back and forth. And then Tiger's just whacking. I mean, again, I know it sounds like the fish story that it just keeps getting bigger every time, but he's hitting balls with thousands of people watching him and they're landing on that putting green 317 yards away. And I, I, I remember, correctly, I don't think he once hit the fitness center. I'm pretty sure he didn't. But it was, so just the atmosphere, the buzz, the athlete himself, Tiger had gotten a tour of the building that morning. He was kind of blown away. You know, his family's all there. It was amazing. It was just unbelievable. And I, again, it's probably my, if I look back and said, pick the five days or five events you went to that were the most amazing, that's easily on that list because that was cool. So now that you're retired and you're starting to really look back at your career uh, at Nike, and <coughs> when you see the swoosh, what does that represent to you? Oh, the swoosh. And I love the story about the swoosh because I was privileged to, to get to know Carolyn Davidson who designed the swoosh. She's a lovely, lovely, lovely woman. Actually just celebrated her 80th birthday. Um, so I got a chance to not only think about what the swoosh is through my eyes, but I got to see, listen to through her eyes or listen through her eyes. You know what I mean? I got to hear what she feels. And I feel the same way in a way, even though I didn't birth the, the mark, I just, I get a tremendous amount of pride because the, it, I know it's ubiquitous and it's somewhat, it's easy now almost to get lost because it's like, you don't even know. I don't notice them anymore in some ways because it's like, well, of course there's a swoosh on it, you know, because that's part of sports. Um, but I just, I just like, I just feel like the, again, being privileged enough to know the backstory as well as I do. It's fun to know that that's going to be a part of me. I never got a tattoo like a lot of Nike people do. Uh, I'm not, you know, again, love Nike. I don't have a tattoo of my kids' names on my body. I'm not going to have a swoosh, right? So, um, but I just feel like a, a connection to it. It's, it's, it's emblematic to me of, of um, oh gosh, so many things, but excellence, um, professional, excellent uh, athletes, ex- excelling. I mean, it just, to me, it's just an amazing mark. And I know that people are like, it's just a little check mark, but not to me. What was the fallout, if any, you know, Mallory brought up the uh, the running shoe falling apart. Mm-hmm. Was there any fallout or um, anything with Zion Williams' shoe falling apart a few years ago? Uh, there was some fallout. I mean, it was definitely not a good uh, situation. Again, the forensics group that came out to or went out to uh, North Carolina to meet with them learned some things right off the bat, such as, you know, he's a very... Uh, powerful and large man and he was wearing the shoes way more off way more than we felt he should 
Uh, Michael, for example, wore a different pair of Jordans for every game he played. Um, and we, you know, we don't necessarily say wear a new shoe for every game, but if you're playing on Zion's level with Zion's weight and Zion's power, uh, he should have been changing his shoe out more often. So there was a, there was a very quick uh, meeting with him to, to discuss when, what happened. Um, clearly when he went pro, he signed with us. So whatever, uh, whatever discussions were had, he felt were satisfactory enough that he was comfortable signing with the company. Is it pretty common for a professional basketball player to change shoes every game? Or every I don't know if it's as common as every game like Michael did, but Michael also turned it into somewhat of a philanthropic yeah. uh, endeavor, right? So he would wear the shoes and then give them or sign them. Or what, you know, so it was, it was kind of a cool thing for me. Plus he had plenty of shoes you know, to get from us. So I don't know the other athletes well enough to know if that's a common uh, occurrence, but we do encourage most athletes again the ones especially that put the real wear and tear on like a center or, or a power forward would um to to not try to get as many miles out of them as humanly possible because that otherwise the, the the it's just not built for that kind of abuse for that long term so athletes they're human people make mistakes um some athletes sometimes have been caught in some hot water and they're signed to Nike. And the one I'm thinking that comes to mind is Mr. Armstrong. And he had the Nike name behind him and live strong. And how does Nike go about handling that? Or how, because obviously you're not speaking on behalf of the company. Let's just make sure that everyone knows that. But how, in your experience and looking in the past, how has Nike handled those situations? It's really, when I mentioned earlier, the, the sports and fitness facility on the other side of Tiger Woods, that was named for Lance Armstrong. So um, that is always a very difficult decision to make. There's only happened a couple of times in, in our history where that's happened. And I think, again, I, I, I wasn't familiar with the specifics of the decision to make, but I do know that the the, the issue with Lance especially was that he had made such a long and um, we felt convincing argument that he was innocent and there was no proof positive that he wasn't. So we kept the building, we kept everything as it was because he had told us that he was telling the truth until he told us he wasn't and told the whole world he wasn't. And that precipitated a rather quick, in fact, I think it was within days, uh, his name uh, and, and, the, and the memorabilia was removed from the Lance Armstrong Fitness Center. And it was now just the Nike Sports and Fitness Center. And I, I don't think, I don't, again, I wasn't in the room. I don't know who made the decision or how it was, came about because, there, you know, Tiger Woods obviously had um, some issues. And what was described to me was, the difference there was even as reprehensible as cheating on a spouse can be, it's not Nike's business. When you, but the, but the, 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 the delineation was that Tiger had marital issues. Lance cheated on the sport. And that is something that Nike uh, is invested in and, and literally was invested in. And so that, I, that was why Lance's building was scrubbed and Tiger Woods building continues. At least that was the way it was described to me. Now I, I can, I find that defendable. I, I think, I think that's, I think that's right. 
I mean, what someone does outside of the course, on the field, on the court, it's not really my place to judge. If I'm I going to use my father's favorite quote. My favorite line is the old Charles Barkley line. Oh. Just because I can dribble a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your children. I'm not a role model. Yep, that's one of our greatest ads, 1993. I think it's your best. Yeah. So, Scott, outside of Nike, you have done a lot. You served on the national board for the University of Oregon Alumni Association. Talk to us about that and um, all the good work that that board has done. That was a fun, I, I really enjoyed the connections I made there, reconnecting with the university again, because my time there was so bizarre, right? I didn't really have the friends, I, the few friends I made on my first tour of duty, as I call it, the early 80s, I lost touch with because I went off in a different path. And on my second tour of duty, I was 27 years old, right? And I'm sitting in classes with 19 and 20 year olds and I'm married, you know, so I was, I didn't really have like a, 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 any sort of normal, if you will, university experience. So the, the Alumni Association allowed me to reconnect in a much, I thought, more interesting way because I got to I got to be more involved with what was going on. I got to hear more about the, where the university was heading. Got to be, you know, my, my own intake, my own input was sought because they were building an alumni center and they, they wanted me to help with the messaging and what would go in. How would you talk about the, alum, the university to prospective students as well as alumni? So I got to work very heavily with the folks that were doing all that content. And that was um, that was very gratifying and fun and different. It was fun to do something different. As much as I love Nike, it was fun to talk about something else. Um, so that was a great six years. I only left because that's how long the terms are. You know, I would have otherwise stayed longer because I was like, that's really fun. But if I can segue that actually then while I was on that board, I was also the, the president of what they call the booster club. It's like the the PTO, if you will, or PTA for my son's high school. And I kept thinking, you know, this Beaverton High School has been around for, at that time, almost 100 years. And I knew that there were several famous alumni, like Mac Wilkins, the, the Olympian, um, uh, um, um, Ari Shapiro of NPR, you know, so there's some guys, men and women, Shoshona Bean, you know, who went to uh, Beaverton High School. And I thought, you know, a school like Beaverton that's been around as long as it has, has got to have some successful alumni that might be having, uh, might be willing to contribute back if they were, if it was packaged in the right way, just similar to the way University of Oregon reaches out to its alumni. So my, essentially my idea was to create an alumni association, if you will, for a high school. And I went to the principal and I explained what I thought we should do. And I called it an endowment fund. It was something basically along those lines. And she said there actually was a, a rather successful alum who had made a contribution in the past. And I said, well, do you think we can hit him up again and be the, the initial donor? And so long story short, we did. He agreed. And he also agreed to do a matching fund to a certain amount. And so that ultimately became what we called the Beaverton Success Fund. <clears throat> and the goal was to, to generate money that would not offset what the district was supposed to do. And we were very clear with the, with the superintendent of the district that this is not like, oh, Beaverton's got its money. We don't need to give them the money they're due. It was supposed to be in addition to. And he agreed. 
And so we set out to, to start raising money and we reached out to a bunch of alumni across the country. And I'm kind of amazed to say that that's 2014, 2015, that as of the last time I spoke with the, with Beaverton High School, they'd raised over $6 million. That has been, uh, it's not all given out every year, but it's, they, we, we, they've, uh, they've up, upgraded the library, right? It's now, it's now like a 21st century um, center where there's like, it's like phone, little things like USB jacks and things like that that would, that would have taken forever to get approved for the district. We've redone the concession stand for the football team, you know, things that, again, there was a perfectly decent concession stand, but it was like so old. Electricity didn't work that well. You know, so we rebuilt one. That was all done out of our funds, the, the, the college and career center, et cetera. So it's really been an amazing transformation and allowed Beaverton to do a lot of things that um, just frankly were well beyond their means. And I've been trying to, with some levels of success, get other high schools, both in Portland and my old high school in Eugene and others to, to embrace the same idea, you know, reach out to the alumni. Some, some people like myself had an amazing time in high school that might even rival their time that they had in college. And that's where two of the largest donors that we've had for the success fund, both said the same thing, that their high school years were transformational and they want to do something big. And one of them really big, you know, gave us a pretty amazing check. And that was just because we asked because we had some, and we had a plan put together. So that's been a, I, I'm very proud of that. And it's, it, and thank you for asking. Cause it's a, it's something that, you know, again, I feel parents and, 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 and associations and, and uh, communities can do. I mean, it's, it's, Amazing statistic that I believe, I think it's 50% of people who graduate from a high school live within some like five to 10 miles of that high school for most of their lives. So whether that's a direct connection to the high school or not, it's definitely a focal point of a lot of people's lives. And I think we need to support them more than, than just saying, well, why isn't our legislature doing it? Or why are, you know, they're getting enough of my tax money. You know, I mean, I, I don't understand punishing kids because you think you're paying taxes too much. But anyway, that's my soapbox. You know, we're not that dissimilar in age, and my four years of high school were much better than my four years of college, as far as fun, enjoyment, and um, most of my friends are people I went to grammar school and high school with. I don't have one college friend. Yeah, me either. Scott, I just want to thank you so much. Um, It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. You have been so open, and you've been great to... um, corresponds with I've been enjoying your emails and but we always end each episode with the same three questions so the first question is if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by what would that be I had this is actually it used to be my my signature at the bottom of my you know Nike email you guys put your little thing there was but it's a little signature and it's a quote from Samuel Clemens aka Mark Twain my favorite author my son's name is Samuel, not by, uh, I mean, not, not coincidence. Um, and his quote was, if I'd had more time, I'd have written less. And I love that because it's like, you can, again, that's also, there is no finish line. You could write that story or you can write that message more succinctly, more directly if you had more time, but sometimes you don't, right? So I just like that whole idea that if I had more time, I'd have written less because I absolutely would. I love that one. Um if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? I've been thinking a lot about this, and I, I, I can see two different interpretations of that 
One is to do over, to do right, you know, almost like a back to the future, kind of writing the wrong or writing history. But I'm choosing to go with more of the able to observe or relive a, a day pretty much as it happened, but be more in the moment. Uh, so in that interpretation, the day I would relive would be the day my first son was born because it was an amazing day. And in general, it's just an amazing day for the, any of the listeners who have a child, I think understands that. But your first child, especially, it's so overwhelming. There's so much going on. I mean, it's like, that's why so many situation comedies have like, you know, the dad like running around, you know, the wife's like, honey, I need to go to the hospital. You know, so it's, it's like this trope, right, of, of, of panic and, and confusion, but it's not far wrong, right? So I would love to be able to now with the knowledge that everything's going to be fine and everything's going to come out, right, have that ability to relive it and refeel it again because it was amazing. But man, by the end of the night, I mean, my, yes, my wife was exhausted, of course, but I was pretty tired too. And I, I would love to be able to relive that day and, and, and essentially enjoy it as opposed to just like holding on for dear life. And then the final question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? Oh, I'm a very musical, I mean, songs to me evoke all sorts of things. Uh, Different songs just immediately take me to different places. And I love different types of music. But I guess I was thinking in the B-52s genre, and I've decided that if there was going to be one song, it would be private Idaho. It's such a rocking song. I don't really even fully understand it. Right. <laughs> it's though I probably should look at the lyrics in time. And I'd be like, what? But the B-52s had just such a pounding progressive, just, you just get jacked up every time you hear them. So private Idaho, just every time I hear it, it gets my, it gets my heart rate up a little bit. So that would be, that's how I would enter a room. Good and then I have people go private Idaho. You ever see them? Oh, many times. Many times. Uh, they're amazing in concert. And I've seen them in a couple of smaller venues too. And Dude, that's where I saw them. Uh, I saw them at the Muni and actually in St. Louis outside. That was amazing. And uh, I almost picked Love Shack. I love that song too. But I just, Private Idaho to me is just, a, it just pushes. It just makes you feel like you, I'm just going to go out and kill the world. But not, I mean, let me, I'm going to go out and crush it. Yeah. Yeah. Crunch it. <laughs> you got to be so careful with your words. These days. Yeah. I'm going to go out and kick ass. How's that? There you go. So that's great. I will add your theme song to the For Your Listening Pleasure Spotify playlist so listeners can listen to your theme song along with everyone else's. Scott, thank you so much. I really appreciate everything. This has been phenomenal. Great. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for your interest in my corner of the world. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it.